0: Welcome to another episode of Inside the Law. My name is Mark Gavigan, and today's topic is domestic abuse. And we have licensed clinical social worker Pat Kimball out of Fishkill, New York, with us today.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Domestic abuse. Why don't the victims of domestic abuse just leave?
1: That is undeniably the classic question. No matter where the subject has come up, that is exactly what people on the other side ask. Why didn't she just leave? Honestly, she would if she could. The victim, and I say she and not lightly, because if you look at the stats as recently as the 90s, which is a long time ago and seems like a ancient history, at least 80% of the times where abuse was a legal situation The woman was the victim, and the male was the abuser. I have personally in my practice had cases where it's exactly the opposite, but it is not the norm. So you will excuse me if I fall into she is the victim. And saying she's the victim is sometimes difficult because I've worked with so many survivors. But I will tell you, the process of domestic violence is layering It begins as something as benign and wonderful and lovely as anybody's lovely beginning relationship. All butterflies and moonbeams and two people falling in love. And by the way, the age that they fall in love and end up in domestic violence is a non-starter because it can be two 18-year-olds, it can be 20-somethings, 30-somethings, and one of the Fastest growing areas of domestic violence is in the population over 65. So the age range is not a factor in any way. But so let's say we have these two 20 somethings who fall madly in love and they decide they want to spend the rest of their life together. We'll make this as typical as possible. And so let's name them Susie and Charlie. And they get married and they are so happy and it's just wonderful. And life goes on. And everything is just delightful, and the family thinks they are great. So Susie, wanting to be the exact wonderful wife, starts cooking dinner. Well, she has a little bit of a learning curve, so it's a little hard for her. And so she makes the meals, and sometimes he says they're great, and sometimes they're not so great. Life goes on. Well, uh, she continues to learn, and they continue to grow together. Now, put the pause button on. And way over here on the other screen is Charlie, who is a young guy who works in an office and uh, loves his wife and thinks this is going to be a perfect lifetime relationship. So Charlie is a guy who has a lot of trouble taking any kind of criticism. He's pretty insecure. He has trouble not being right. He likes to be applauded, and he doesn't like anything that isn't applause and he doesn't know how to communicate very well. So as he's working in his job, and the young couple is building their life, Charlie's boss is not all that happy with him. And so he begins to say, look, Charlie, I want you to try it this way, not this way. And you need to be putting more emphasis on this over here and less emphasis on this over there. And so this is going on day after day, and Charlie, who thought he was just tremendous, finds that he's coming home, leaving the office, and arriving home with just a tight neck and knots in his stomach, and making fists. And he's really upset. And he walks in the door, and uh, she gets home ahead of him, and and she's hi, hon, how you doing? And he goes, I'm fine. What's the matter? You don't seem very happy. Leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I made a nice dinner. Just leave me alone. Well, she just doesn't know what to do with this. She's never encountered anything like this. And so she leaves him alone and she makes dinner and has dinner and kind of just says, Dinner, leave me alone. So she cleans up and she puts it away. Okay, day one, event one. Life goes on and this appears and doesn't appear randomly. But as Charlie's job gets more challenging and he hears more criticism, it happens more often. And so she's trying really, really hard to make this a wonderful, wonderful time. Oh, hi, honey. I know that I'm not the best cook in the world. But listen, I know that your mother made a tremendous meatloaf and that you loved it. And I called her and I got the recipe and I'm going to make this meatloaf tomorrow night because I know you've been having a really tough time at work and this is going to be fun. He says, all right, fine, that's good. Make sure you make it like hers because it's the only one I ever ate. Okay, great. Yeah, it's perfect. Off he goes. She goes to work. She comes home. She makes the meatloaf. He's had a really bad day at work. The boss has been all over him. Coworkers have mentioned it. They're beginning to see it. He's just not taking this well at all. In he comes. Hi, honey, how are you? I made the meatloaf. Aren't you excited? Come on, sit down. He takes one look at the pan of meatloaf on the on the stove, picks it up by the edges, and throws the whole thing against the wall. I hate meatloaf. Leave me alone and get out of the way. And the meatloaf slowly slides down the wall. This may sound a bit extreme, and I'm sorry to tell you that it is not. Perhaps the individual situation of meatloaf sliding down the wall is not... Happening over and over in exactly that way. But the story that I wanted you to get the picture of is that the abuser arrives at the scene stressed, pulling the tensions, pulling the pain, pulling the discomfort, pulling the unusual circumstances that he's not been able to solve. And he brings it home. And that night it happened to be the meatloaf. But you know what? It kind of didn't matter what she cooked. When the pressure cooker was on, all she had to do was say hello, and that would be enough. When you have violence in a relationship, you have one person who is seeking to please and please and please and who is driven by needing to have other people say they are okay, other people say that they are doing the right thing. And then you have the other partner, who has no ability to ameliorate what goes on in the world, they can't handle it. If they're not praised, not lifted up, not made right, not applauded, they are so destroyed that they have to take that out on someone, and that's usually the partner. Now, of course, we know situations where there is violence on the children, it's, it is probably, I would say, less than 50% of the time that the violence is perpetrated on the children and not on the wife, sometimes on both. It's a difficult situation no matter how you look at it, and it's very easy to demonize the perpetrator, very easy, because we all say, who could ever do that and no one would ever do that? Well, it's one of the biggest kept secrets. Domestic violence is an equal opportunity employer. I've seen domestic violence come out of the most horrific ghetto, but I've also had domestic violence in my office in a very expensive three-piece suit. So by no means is this something that takes place only in lower-income homes or in farm communities, rural communities. Oh, no, it is truly probably along with addiction or perhaps even greater than addiction, an equal-opportunity employer. And it's even more in the dark than addiction. There are a few things that are kept as far in the dark.
0: I want to understand, someone's thrown the meatloaf against the wall. What happens in the following weeks, months, and years? Okay.
1: So let's just take what happens the rest of that evening. It's very quiet. She's crying quietly, and he stomps out and goes down. Maybe to the nearest bar, maybe to the nearest coffee shop bar is not intrinsic, but generally there's someone behind the counter can talk to him, and he arrives steaming. And she's sitting on the side of the bed or at the dinner table after she's cleaned the meatloaf off off the wall and off the floor, and she's crying quietly. Now, one would think, is she going to call her mother? Is she going to call her sister? Actually, no she's just going to sit there trying to figure out what has happened. It's a long time and a lot of meatloaf before she finally decides she can let somebody else in on the secret. Because one of the things that the two of them have talked about in their courtship is that they do not want interference from the family. She has said, well, you know, my mother likes to tell me what to do. And he said, well, that's all over. I don't want them to know anything about our life. And she hears that loud and clear. It's printed in her memory. So time goes on. Every episode is not meatloaf. But what is present every time is that somebody has expectations of things going well and the other person comes home and can only explode can only relieve themselves of the tension and the stress and so it builds you know what maybe the next episode is a year away maybe it's two years away I've had people come into my office and say well you know he was only roughed me up on our honeymoon and we've been married five years so I think you must be wrong something else must be going on that I have these black and blue marks from him it's a very slow mover in most cases. It will layer in episode after episode. Some are bigger, some are smaller, but they have certain common distinguishing characteristics. She is always wrong. He always had nothing to do with it. And if she had just done what he expected, none of this would have happened. So part of the victimization is that he is never wrong. And she is always the person who starts this. Whether it goes on for years or whether she takes a deep breath after a short period of time, the way it ends is always by her slipping away.
0: Is this guy going to the bar or coffee shop? Does that often end in a confrontation there? He knocks somebody's teeth out? Or is the wife always the outlet for this rage?
1: Good point generally in domestic violence, she is usually the only victim. He will sit at the bar or the coffee shop and talk to to some friends or somebody there about, you know, I love my wife. I don't know what I'm going to do about her. She's just not that bright. I All I wanted was to come home and, you know, just have a quiet house and no big deal. And Now I got all this expectation about she's done all this. You know, I just don't know what I'm going to do with her. Does anybody have any ideas? And you know, this guy is sincere. He really believes what he's saying. He believes that if he could just get her to listen to him, none of this would ever happen. This time and the hundredth time, it's pretty much the same scenario. If he's driving home, here's where it might change. If he's driving home from work that day and somebody cuts him off, he's very likely to run them down and run them off the road. And I've seen it more than once. I did one time have someone who ran someone off the road, pulled him out of the car, and gave him such a terrible beating that I am not sure how the person recovered. So the idea is that on his way home, he has what we refer to as this bottled rage. And where the cork comes off depends on who, in his mind, crosses him first.
0: Tell me how this turns into violence. And is it something gradual or right out of the gate, as horrible as someone could imagine?
1: Well, let's define what the violence is first, because I think that's an important point. What is violence in this setting? Is it a broken bone? Is it a smashed cheekbone? the violence begins, and it's generally unnamed, by a slammed door or a pounded counter. Those are usually the first indicators that something is building in this relationship. There's a very clear message in those slamming doors and pounding fists. The message is a very clear one. You could be next, so you better be careful. That's how it begins Generally, it goes down the road because she is immediately cowed. She moves back. She's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't know, tell me what to do. She's responsive to that because it's scary, unquestionably. So that may go on for a while. It may go on, and and if his rage is bigger than that on a given day, and she begins to move away, he grabs her by the arm. When we are taking intakes in the police department, for instance, Uh, or in the emergency room, I always would have a woman stretch out her arms, take off her shirt, if it's wintertime, sweater, so I can see her full arm from the armpit out, and stretch her arms out. I'm looking for a pattern of round bruises, usually on her upper arm, which will bruise much more quickly. Those bruises, if there's just one, that I can see with her arm facing me, I'm sure there's one on the other side, that's thumb and forefinger finger, squeezing her upper arm until a bruise appears. Or if there's a row of them, that's a hand with all the fingers squeezing so hard that a bruises appear. Those are the signs of progression. Seeing a woman who comes into perhaps, you know, someone's office and looks like she has an extraordinary amount of makeup on Well, on closer inspection, she's probably covering up a black eye. Clothes get torn, collars get pulled, buttons pop off. Yes, there is a progression. It rarely goes from everything's wonderful and she has a broken arm. It runs a little different in children, but that's just kind of a separate story. When we're talking about two adults, those are the signs that we look for. If this is an office setting, for instance, where she works, you look for someone who's habitually late.
0: I have slammed plenty of doors, so, or pounded my fist on the table when I'm trying to fix something, plumbing in particular, and I'll put 10 minutes into something, follow every single instruction, and it still leaks water, and I lose my mind, I pound my fist on the counter, uh, and I have to start over again. There might not even be anybody in the house, so I'm doing this. So it sounds like the context might be I'm directing it towards that person in response well, to something they did.
1: Yes, absolutely. This this is always in response to some question from her, some verbal interchange between them, completely benign if you were to see it written on paper or even if you were to hear it. It's his response that is always exaggerated and out of bounds to some benign question. Hi, how are you? And he's explosive. The point is that he brings his anger, his resentment, his stored up emotional pain and discomfort to the house and can't wait to dump it on her. All she has to do is say hello. There isn't anything that she says that is directly related to that out of context
0: response. Is that pain and discomfort that he feels always generated outside of the house? Yes, pretty much always generated. It will be
1: started outside the house. Generally, it began much further than the job and has personality characteristics to it. But the beginning is always outside the house or the the trip point is outside the house. If he's planning, for instance, for a big presentation on a given morning the next day, say at work, and he comes home and says, I have this big presentation and I have to be up early and have to be ready. And and so you know how important that is. So make sure everything goes well. And everybody's, yes, fine. She says, OK, I'll make sure. And that's all that she's told. And the next morning when he's looking to get dressed, he comes roaring into the kitchen or somewhere yelling, where's my blue shirt? You know, I always wear my lucky blue shirt and she's mystified so you see it it tumbles over in different ways but he's he's a very poor communicator so he doesn't understand how he needs to communicate with her to get what he wants he has no and it's always backed up by his inability to have the tools to manage his own stress and his own Anger and disappointment and worry and all those things that pile up together.
0: Okay. And we're going to get further into that in a few minutes. Help me understand now, how do things progress from door slamming and counterpounding to violence? And do they always? Some, does it sometimes just end here and this is what it is at its worst?
1: Yes, that can be all it is, but it doesn't go away. And I think that that's an important point. Most of this kind of situation when you're talking about how people function inevitably grow worse. Now it may grow worse over a long period of time. She may adjust to, wow, this is just how it is and this is how he is. Wow, this must just be what it's like to be married. I don't know. And she accepts more and more. And the more slowly that this progresses, the more she accepts it. There is a concept in psychology called the frog in the pot. And that is that if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water and you turn the the heat on very slowly, the frog will boil to death. He will not jump out of the pot because he doesn't really notice that it's getting warmer. And it's a classic situation in domestic violence because she doesn't really realize, unless it's huge and overt and very fast-moving, but usually it is a very slow layering. Uh, He brings his stress home, dumps it on her, she goes and sits in the room, or she somehow internalizes it, she doesn't take it out anywhere, she knows better. The price for that is usually quite huge. So she just goes on. And as it gets worse over time, she simply adjusts to it. And many times it isn't until someone from the outside comes to visit and and is sees this, that that person says to her, I can't believe you live like this. What are you doing being treated like that? Because it's been such a long, slow layering progression.
0: Is The abuser consciously moving from slamming a door or counter to grabbing an arm as someone's trying to move away to shoving. Do they realize what they're doing? They don't necessarily realize that the
1: progression is there. Remember, their progression is driven by their belief that she continues to uh, monumentally not do the right things. Now she's not doing this. Now she's not doing that. And his internalizing of that is really a reflection of how, his, how much more complex his own outside world is becoming.
0: So how far do things go before this abuser realizes, I have become a person who beats his wife and puts her in the hospital? Is there ever a realization on their own
1: I would have to say in my experience, no. In my training, no. There is such a cementing of the belief that he is not the one at fault. This is how he protects his own psyche, his own self. He can't look at himself honestly, as you would look at him, at this as this outsider would look at him. He's unable to do that because that truth would be so devastating to him he does not see himself as an abuser i cannot tell you how many people who have come whose cases have come in front of me in various settings clear clear perpetrators of abuse and they would argue me right down to the wall because they are unable to accept that truth very likely They came out of an abusive childhood, and because they remember the abusive childhood, they cannot relate to having become that abusive parent.
0: Would the victim of that abuse say, yes, I am a victim of domestic abuse?
1: Again, not for a very, very long time. For I have done emergency room intakes with women who are so battered that you would cringe if you saw them. Who are lying on a gurney with broken bones, two black eyes, and they just can't see themselves as a victim of domestic violence. They see themselves as the person who, if only I'd ironed that blue shirt, this never would have happened.
0: That is astounding.
1: I'm sure it's astounding.
0: Sad beyond belief.
1: It is one of the deepest, darkest secrets. And I will tell you, it's more difficult to get the wife of the guy who's wearing that expensive three-piece suit and those $500 loafers to believe that she's a victim of domestic violence, you generally take someone from the outside, some college roommate who hasn't seen her for years, uh, someone who really does not see her in everyday life, to recognize and to get her to at least begin to look at what the situation of her life is. The other situation is if he turns from her and begins to abuse the children, that is usually the only time within the home that she suddenly takes a look at what's going on.
0: Is she unable to recognize herself as a victim of abuse because she really wants to keep up appearances, or is it something different? She's keeping up appearances within herself. To look in the mirror and
1: say, I am a victim of domestic abuse by the person that I love is nearly impossible. If you look at the juxtapositions of those
0: statements, it's nearly impossible. And it's not because she wants to maintain her status in the eyes of other people. It's because internally she can't bring herself to do it. She can't bring herself to do it. And she knows that she
1: has to keep it hidden from the outside world. Because if the out, he's very clear. If the outside world has it, the slightest scent, he will beat her twice as badly. So she is protecting herself by putting on the makeup, by wearing the long sleeves, by, saying creating excuses about why they can't go to the family picnic in July because she has to wear long sleeves. Oh, yeah, she's into it for her own protection. But the denial in her own head, you have to remember, she believes that if she would do the right thing, He would never hurt her again. She just can't figure out the right thing. She's too stupid, and he's convinced her of that.
0: You left a career where you could make lots of money and have a really comfortable life to come and deal with this. Why do you care, and why did you give all that up?
1: I care because this kind of damage is intergenerational. I came into it because somebody has to do what they can to break the cycle. And that is really why I do this. If no one is there to intervene and teach different ways of doing things, teach different ways, true ways of loving, to recreate what is really a loving relationship, yes, you can. You can have a loving relationship. No, love doesn't hurt. Love cherishes. Love cares. Children don't have to grow up with parents screaming and dishes thrown in meatloaf against the wall. No, I'm in this. Because I believe that even one person can do what they can to break the chain.
0: How can somebody on the outside, a boss, a colleague, a friend, a police officer, recognize the signs of a victim of abuse?
1: A very good question, because a lot of people, most people are not educated. The police are pretty good these days, but um, teachers, clergy, Uh, bosses, they usually don't have a clue. And some of the things that a boss, for instance, let's just stay with that, would have to watch for would be someone who has more absences than usual. They seem to be developing into a pattern more late time. Then seems to be, for instance, if it's someone, if, you know, you have people working in cubes in a large setting, they seem to be away from their cube whenever they look, you know, they're not at their at their desk, doing whatever they're doing, or they're off the floor. Lots of times this will be changing bandages, applying more makeup, that kind of thing. Uh, Someone in the office setting who never brings a spouse to a Christmas party or some other event if there's an office picnic or something. You look for things that are different, and certainly looking for someone's physical appearance to be different look for someone, like I say, with the long sleeves, with more makeup, with band-aids, who's walking with a limp. You know, the classic thing about the black eye is, oh, I walked into a door. Now, that used to be classified as an old vaudeville joke, but even today, it is used as the most common excuse for a black eye. People rarely walk into an open door. Could it happen? Yes, but if if you start adding up the things that are unusual about a person, even how they answer their personal calls and how you hear on the other side, yes, okay, all right, yes, I I understand, okay, yes, certainly, okay. That anxiety, that super anxious to please the person on the other end of the phone, those are the kinds of signs that need to be looked for. But it's very important to say here, That unless you know exactly what you are doing as far as pulling that person out of a domestic violence situation, if you don't have professional help, you can put that person in the kind of danger you have no idea you're putting them into. Tell me more. It's very important that she is on board for leaving. She has to be 100% on board that she is going to be ready to leave. And that she can keep the secret until the time comes. Generally, if you suspect that someone is in a domestic violence situation, for instance, in your office, my first recommendation is that you call a domestic violence agency. Counties, County Mental Health will generally have someone that you could speak with. Can I talk with someone to uh, find out how I can help someone who's in a domestic violence situation? That's how you would get your foot in the door and they will give you all of the help and instruction that you need but i will tell you how it will need to look i can tell you the story of a situation here was a young man who was in the army in germany he'd always had a bad temper the army seemed to take care of that so he was in so he went to germany met a young woman fell in love she thought he was the just the most wonderful thing and uh, they got married, and because she was now a dependent of a U.S. Army personnel, when he was transferred back to the States along she came. Now, she didn't speak English, but she totally adored him. And because they came back and didn't have a place to live, they lived with uh, they lived with his parents. And they lived in a small little, took over one of the bedrooms downstairs, and there were other teenagers living in the house at the time, but it was a perfectly average everyday American place. He was going to look for a job. This was fine. And so they lived there for about two or three months and every now and then the siblings and the parents could hear some loud voices behind the closed door downstairs, but people have arguments. It seemed that they would just work it out. She would come to the dinner table occasionally with red eyes, but you know what? There was a lot going on there and so the parents didn't think much about it. He got a job. They got an apartment um, in the next town. They moved in. Everything seemed fine. They came to visit. Sunday afternoon, barbecue. She seemed to have very, very red eyes, and they looked very puffy. When they left, she didn't have much to say. She didn't know much English, so the parents questioned her and questioned him when he was by himself. Is she all right? Is she sick? What happened? No, no, no. She's just fine. She's got allergies. It's fine. So a little while later, they come to visit, and it's very clear she has really a large bruise that she's covering up. So note is taken of this. Nobody says anything. This seems to be happening repeatedly. There always seems to be something she's covering up every time they come to visit. So questioning what this is, the mother comes, makes a call to our agency, the agency I was working with at the time, and asks if she could talk to somebody because she thinks her daughter-in-law is in a domestic abuse situation. So she came in, and I talked with her and asked what she saw, and she gave me all these details. And I said to her, yes, I felt that that was exactly what was going on. And she explained that that they lived in an apartment in the next town. He had a job, and this girl barely spoke English, that it was almost impossible to communicate with her in English, and that the family didn't speak German. So we devised a plan where um, the mother would stop by when the son was at work and see if she could just randomly get the girl to come out for lunch and then bring her to our office where we had a German interpreter. We got that to fly. She came into the office. The German interpreter talked to her, and the girl just completely fell apart. I think she was 21 or 22 at the time. She totally went to pieces. Yes, she was being beaten regularly by her husband. She didn't know where to turn. She wanted to go home. She couldn't figure out how to do that. They didn't have any money. He would never let her go, and so on. Uh, The way we worked that out was that his parents were willing to pay for the plane ticket. The office, the German interpreter, got in touch with her parents And when he was at work one day, the parents went by the apartment and helped her pack a bag and took her to the airport, bought her a plane ticket, and put her on the plane back to Germany. And then her parents on the other end did send word that she had arrived safely. That is the kind of thing that needs to happen. Now, you can't always send someone out of the country. But my point to people is that... To arrive at this couple's house and say, we really think she's being beaten and uh, we're here to straighten this out, he's going to give the greatest disclaimer you ever heard. And when you leave, he is going to beat her. Hopefully he doesn't beat her to death. So this is not some place where you stick your nose unless you know exactly what you're doing and you have professional support.
0: So you're not saying don't take any steps to try and help, you're saying be careful to immediately turn to a professional and let them help. Absolutely. And do exactly as they tell you. Now, if I call up the county mental health department and I say, oh, I think there's a domestic abuse situation with someone who lives on my street, am I now opening a file that I might be destroying somebody's career or their reputation or something else? And maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe you are, but what got my question to you, if you, you know, if
1: that call came to my office, I would say, well, tell me what you're seeing. Tell me what you're hearing. And maybe I would direct you, depending on how well you knew these people, maybe I would direct you to see if you can get a phone number of a relative, see if you can get someone closer to the situation to help out. On the other hand, if you're in your neighborhood sitting out on your deck some night, and you hear plates crashing, please call the police. They know how to handle this. They're not the best, but they're better than nothing, and they're better than doing the wrong thing.
0: So if the police were called in that situation you described before today, what would the police do, and what should they do? Uh, Generally what the police will do is
1: they send two officers always, and they separate the couple immediately.
0: Hold on. They have two officers for what reason?
1: Oh, there are always two because in domestic violence, you can't send an officer into. They don't know what they're coming into. They don't know how violent this might be. Uh, They would never send a single officer to a domestic violence call. Not to my knowledge, anyway. So they would come in and they would separate the couple. Each one would speak with one of them and they would move either outside or to another floor. They are out of hearing range and they are out of any kind of visual distance, so that each one can be interviewed. Now, here's how this is probably going to go. He is going to deny. They're just having an argument. It's ridiculous, these nosy neighbors. And she is probably going to deny as well. They will ask her, do you have a friend? Can you go to somebody's house for overnight? Can you just, until this cools down? They're, and she, Unless she's willing to press charges, they're not taking him away. They're going to try and get one or the other of them to go to somebody's house and cool off for overnight, and they'll put it on the blotter. It is very rare, and after many, many calls, that she is willing to press charges. You need to understand, even if she leaves him and goes to a shelter, she's most likely going to be back within 48 hours. The average woman leaves a domestic violence situation 22 times before she
0: actually leaves him permanently why especially if it takes so much for her to ever admit that there's a problem now she has to do it 22 times why once she's admitted it is she still going back she believes it's her fault there is something called
1: learned helplessness she believes that she's at fault and that if she would just get it right and that she loves him. She loves him. If he's such a good guy, you just don't understand. He has a lot of problems at work. He has people don't understand him. I just did the wrong thing. I asked the wrong question today. If only I would get it right. I can't live my life without him. And there are other things that keep her going back as well, which I don't even know if we have the time to cover here. And that's That's more of the emotional side and the economic abuse. Let me talk about the economic abuse because it's an important factor about why she goes back. In a domestic violence situation, she is moved to be less and less powerful, more and more powerless within the relationship. So what do you mean by that? Well, she doesn't have her own checkbook. She doesn't have her own checking account. Her name isn't on the checks. He handles all the money. If she's working, her paycheck goes directly into his account. The underlying feature in a domestic violence relationship is that it is about and defined by power and control. He is in power and he is in full control. And that is the only time that he is comfortable. And so he makes sure that that she doesn't have power over anything. He buys her clothes. He decides exactly what she's going to wear. He decides where she will work and how many hours, who she will be friends with. She doesn't have outside friends, and he gradually peels her family back. I don't like your aunt. We're not going to your mother's. She doesn't like me. We're not going to your family's for Thanksgiving until she is so isolated financially, relationally and emotionally, that there isn't any other world but him. I would encourage you to go to the supermarket some Saturday evening, oh, sometime between, say, 5.30 and 7.30 on a Saturday night, because there are a lot of people who get paid on Saturdays. Just kind of walk up and down the aisles and look for a family. Look for a man and a wife And a couple of kids. And the kids aren't running free. They're all kept very close on. And maybe the little ones are in a separate cart. But everybody's right there. Put your hands on that cart. And she is taking the things off the shelf that he tells her to take off. Because he knows what they're going to eat. And if she says, oh, look at this. This is a different kind of jelly. Maybe we should try this. I don't like that. Oh, okay. And his flavor goes in the cart. Kids kids don't ask for anything. When have you been in a supermarket where kids don't ask for anything? These kids don't ask for anything. They come at that hour because he's been paid. They come at that hour because she won't ever be coming by herself. And when they get to the checkout counter, only his name's on the check. So that's part of the power and control. You see, there's a lot of layers to this.
0: So even the best-trained well-intentioned police officers walking into a domestic violence situation are really limited in terms of what they can do. Absolutely.
1: Their best, this is a terrible thing, but their best shot is if she's beaten so badly that they absolutely have to call an ambulance because that's the way they're going to get her out of there. Might she go back? Sadly, yes. But... That's how they at least get her separated from him and get him into uh, a
0: place where they
1: can press criminal charges. It's a very, very sad situation.
0: And of course, our criminal justice system is designed so that guilty people will go free to be sure innocent people are not found guilty. Absolutely. So with that in mind, how should the law change or should the law change so that we can prosecute domestic abusers more easily. I'll tell you, I I'm not a student of the law, so I
1: can't say exactly how the law should change. But I'll tell you what needs to change, and I've watched it over the years change in the county that I live in. Um, what you need is is a district attorney in your county who understands how severe and how dangerous domestic violence is because that is the person who then puts in a separate office of advocacy out of the DA's office for solely for domestic violence that is the person who rallies the community to create good shelters who rallies the community to put up rehabilitation programs for the victims and for the perpetrators uh, so that there actually can be change so that the change actually happens. That's where it needs to start because if it starts at that place with the district attorney, the trickle-down is
0: tremendous. What would you encourage those police officers to do differently than what they do right now in these situations?
1: Actually, I think that if they can convince the victim, if she doesn't need hospital care, to go to a shelter for 24 hours. And I'm not talking about a homeless shelter. I mean a battered women's shelter. If if every, and maybe this is the law, I don't quite know how that works, but if it was necessary on every domestic violence call that the victim go to a domestic violence shelter for 24 hours, And he be in a situation where he has to meet with a counselor for 20, you know, in a 24-hour period, some kind of cooling tank or something. I think that we could make some more progress. And by progress, I think the first thing that would crack under that kind of situation would be that she would see she could actually have support. There would be people around her. She could actually be protected from him. And then you reach him. They are very, very difficult to treat and the treatment needs to be extensive
0: and deep. It's a shame there is not some sort of a breathalyzer to indicate that this is a domestic abuser.
1: Yes, it certainly is because I will tell you that they are that they are impossible to spot in the general population. It is kept so close and their own way of protecting themselves is to create such an isolated situation. I mean there've been major cases really involving Death when it's up in the papers. People are shocked. You hear people all over town going, Can you believe that? Who would ever
0: think he was?
1: Because it's just one of those underground things.
0: So, if I live in a neighborhood with 40 other homes, in how many of those are there likely to be domestic violence situations?
1: Uh, I don't know what the stats are on that. I really don't have any idea. I would say you're probably going to find some kind of abuse in, I would say to you, 25% of
0: those houses.
1: You may find severe abuse. It wouldn't surprise me if you found
0: severe abuse in 10%. Is there any kind of a kinship amongst abusers? Will they recognize one another?
1: Unfortunately, the place where you'll see that kinship is among men, you know, that guy kind of stuff, sitting at a bar or at a bowling alley or uh, ball games, that kind of guy sort of situation where they will commiserate about their stupid wives. Yeah, she can't even iron the shirt I need. I can't believe it, but I work with her. You know, I love her. We do the best we can. Yeah, mine too. I have never heard of a situation where a non-abuser would commiserate and support that kind of a conversation. So yes, that's where they find each other.
0: Okay, and we're certainly not painting every bar-going, sports-loving guy uh, as an abuser.
1: No, but what we are painting is that if you are exposed to someone who's constantly talking about how stupid his wife is,
0: that's a red flag. I wanna go back to the story about the young woman who returned to Germany. Is there something in her nature that's going to cause her to seek out another person who is going to abuse her?
1: Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And I have to give a disclaimer about that and about the abuser because it is true in the character of individuals that if you come out of a particular situation, relationship, and it has ended badly... If that person does not receive therapy treatment to change their profile, they will simply go on to have the same relationship with a person in a different body. And that goes for both people. So yes, she has a setup, unless she has a tremendous amount of really good treatment, individual and group with other battered women, she will most likely fall prey to another abuser. Usually it won't be a physical abuser because she's got all those red lights down. But it could be a sexual abuser, an economic abuser, most likely an emotional abuser. But yes, unless she receives treatment, she's set up to directly go into another uh, disastrous relationship. And so is he, by the way.
0: So for this next series of questions, I would like you to consolidate your 10 years of education and your 25 years of professional experience into a three or four minute response. Tell me about an abuse victim and what is in that woman's makeup that causes her to need this kind of person to seek this abusing person out. And then what is it that can actually change her in counseling and, and what other things can be done to truly change the type of person she seeks out and responds to. Um,
1: She is a people pleaser. She very much wants to be recognized by men. She very likely wasn't either grew up. The easy first answer is that she grew up in a domestic violence home. And this is what she how she watched her mother be treated. And she figured this is just how it goes that's a very that's a very common denominator, along with that. this is someone who perhaps, if it wasn't a domestic violence situation, someone who did not get the appropriate love care and attention from her father, so she's looking for that that attention from the father to the daughter, from any parent to any child, but if we're talking in this particular aspect is extremely important for her to build her own self-esteem in ways that she can relate as an equal as she grows up. Fathers draw daughters up to equality, and how a father treats a daughter is very much
0: what she expects and what she looks for and what she is comfortable with. When you say the attention from her father, the love, what's missing? Walk me through a scenario where there's this I don't know if it's like a giant hole in this young woman's heart.
1: Well, I'll tell you how that can, how that, well, let me give you a scenario. That's probably easier. Uh, young woman, child, young girl, dad works during the week. Uh, mom works on the weekends. So dad watches her. Let's even, let's even make it that she's an only child. It could be siblings, but let's just go with an only child for the moment. So dad's in charge of caring for her on the weekend. Let's say she's, um six, seven, eight years old like that. Mom worked on the weekend. So dad um, will see that she has her cereal for breakfast um, and her peanut butter and jelly for lunch. And mom's home for dinner. But in between, he's in his workshop. Got a workshop in the garage, does woodworking as a hobby. And that's where he is. And if she wants to come out and be there, he goes, no, no, listen, there's too many tools. In here. Go inside, watch your iPad, just play with your dolls. Don't you know, I'll I'll be in. You hungry? You need anything? No, I'm good. That kind of scenario. And if you take that over an entire growing up where a father just doesn't interact, Um, father doesn't do any of the drop-offs, pickups, doesn't uh, know any of her friends. Really, she doesn't. And the mom does all these things. Let's just assume that the mom's super mom and does all these things and, you know, picks up the friends and, Has the birthday parties. It's a birthday party for the little girl. Dad's not around. Oh, yeah. My husband had to work. He's off somewhere with some friends. Couldn't be bothered. I guess that's really the catchphrase. The dad couldn't be bothered.
0: But most of the time, a lot of the time, it's not just that. It's an abuse situation where mom is being violently abused by dad.
1: No, on the contrary. It is more often that she will end up with an abuser when she has a father who ignores her because the, the sheer numbers of abusive households are not that high. I mean, you know, if we talk, I don't know, I to throw out numbers. I, maybe let's just broadly throw out the number. If it's 10% of the general population, 10% of the couples are domestic abusers. Well, remember, they don't all have kids. Um, all those kids are not girls. So, no, it is not most likely. That's certainly the number one most hottest button, let's put it that way, for her to pick an abuser.
0: So, a boy and a girl grow up in a household where there's domestic violence from the father to the mother. The girl is likely to grow up to seek out an abuser, and the boy, I guess, will grow up to potentially be an abuser.
1: The odds for him to be an abuser are very, very high. Uh, It's generally one or the other. It's generally black black or white for each of the children, each gender. Either they become or seek out an abuser or they are so wildly and completely at the other end of the spectrum. And I have seen men who grew up with a father as an abuser who ended up marrying an abusive wife. It's so ingrained. It's very without therapy. It's, it just runs its own show.
0: So tell me, please, about how therapy can change what, in the scenario we talked about before, what this young woman returning to Germany is looking for, what she's desperately in need of in her relationships. How, how does therapy change that?
1: Well, to begin with, the, the overall goal for for therapy in this situation and all situations is to look inside, to have the help to look inside the person and build up the places inside the person that are deficient, that haven't been fully nurtured and grown and brought to the front. So the the person in therapy brings themselves to full adulthood and to full realization of who they are as an important human being. That's the goal. And once that happens, when you have a person, let's just take this young woman, once she goes through the painful process of understanding how she got where she is, and then the work of changing the way in which she thinks and feels about herself comes to understand that she is a valuable, important, precious human being to herself and then to the world That's the goal, because then anybody who tries to tell her she's anything different has no
0: place to hold on. Now, walk me through the same thing on the domestic abuser side. What is this person lacking? What causes them to become a person who will beat this person they love to within an inch of their life?
1: There are a lot of characteristics, and it's very difficult to pick one thing out. First of all, you have you have a category of abusers who are sociopaths, and the, the, that's a characterization, a personality malformation that creates a person who has no guilt. So that's at one extreme end.
0: Okay, okay. so a sociopath is someone who has no guilt.
1: No conscience, none whatsoever. Um, the, the best personification of a sociopath I ever saw was Hannibal Lecter in the movie Silence of the Lambs. Is that the extreme edge? You bet. But there you have it. No conscience whatsoever. So some abusers are that. But if we kind of take the middle of the road, yes, this is a guy who probably most likely, almost certainly grew up in seeing the primary male in the household have the power and control to run the household mercilessly, starting with the wife. You have to go back when we talk about rehabilitating the perpetrator to the power and control dynamic because having complete control, being completely in power, is the only way that perpetrator feels safe. And when you, when you look back at the other side, his childhood, of course if you grow up in a violent situation, you're terrified. You're terrified all the time. So the only way you can be not terrified is to be in charge. It's black and white all over again. And so if you're putting that person into treatment, the only, in my experience, the only viable, worthwhile treatment for domestic violence abusers is there are some excellent programs and it's a group setting. Individual therapy is totally and completely
0: worthless. Now that's spoken as someone who provides individual Individual therapy. therapy. (laughs) I may not be uh, the right person for your marketing department. So it sounds like what you do is exactly the wrong thing for people in this scenario.
1: I don't, I don't. Abusers. Yeah, I don't see abusers. And uh, by and large, once the law gets involved, in this county anyway, they are mandated
0: to a program that meets twice a week for 25 weeks. So that that's 50 sessions. Is that really enough where gee, 50 sessions and maybe they're an hour and a half each? So 75 hours is enough to really begin to transform this human being?
1: Uh, these sessions generally run from six to nine. It's a group setting. There are at least two clinicians. One is a man, one is a woman. These are really, really tough programs. It's it's kind of a, in its intensity. It borders on a scared straights kind of thing but it doesn't work on fear but it's tough it's hard now does it i don't know of any stats that that i could pull on to say after this program they're never involved again my feeling is they come out of that kind of program and relocate geographically so i really don't know what happens to them but i do know that anything less than that kind of a program just sends some other woman to the er there's no shortage of women who are primed to get into a domestic violence relationship.
0: What is it about a group setting for the domestic abuser that is so much more effective than individual counseling?
1: Group treatment in this case is so wildly effective because you have you have to remember, so let's say I think that the I think that the quota for that particular group is twenty. So you've got twenty men in there. They are varying in age economic situation. They, they're they in all kinds of ways. I mean, you got that $800 suit, those $500 loafers are sitting in there next to the carpenter, next to the plumber, next to the bus driver, next to the middle manager from IBM. So you have, uh, and the ages are all, so you have this huge homogeneous mix. And the number one thing that got them in here is that their charges were pressed. They were convicted of domestic violence. So you're going to get and the, the scenarios that come out and how you will behave and each person is given is given a scenario and and the counselor will be the per you know will be the the person who's poking the bear. And you have six hours a week for twenty five weeks of people poking the bear and rating that. And if you don't graduate, you get another twenty five weeks. It's a powerful, powerful way. Uh, Anything less than that is just really a waste of time.
0: Is there any way to gauge whether someone is going through the motions and putting on the right show versus really letting it get into their soul?
1: Absolutely. And this goes back to your very first questions to me about education of a clinician. Specific education for not only clinical social work, education and all the continuing education that goes with it, specifically towards human behavior, neurobiology of the brain, neurobiology of social pathology, how people behave, a lot of big words. But but that kind of education is absolutely important and intense separate education about how to deal with domestic violence perpetrators. These people are trained to a fine pencil point, yes, They're going to get the guy who thinks he can get over. You have to remember that narcissism in domestic violence is a gigantic component.
0: Tell me what narcissism is and please explain why.
1: Okay. Narcissism is one of the personality disorders in the spectrum. What is a personality disorder? It is a malformation of the character of the individual in a particular direction when it's narcissism the character of the person focuses only on the self everything is about me if it rains it's against me if the sun is shining that's a good day for me if you if you walk past me at work and you don't say hello to me you're you're hateful to me and I'm going to have to get back at you everything everything is about the individual everything needs to feed me and they will look for weaker people in relationships whether they're friendships or romantic relationships to feed on they feed on the weak
0: in what way would they feed on a friendship
1: uh someone who was always hi so i'm so glad to see you come on let me buy you lunch let's go have lunch tell me what you thought about those jets yeah you're right That's another personality disorder, someone who is so dependent that they constantly need to be supported and validated by another person. The match of a dependent personality disorder and a narcissist is domestic violence made in heaven.
0: What are some of the uh, crossovers where you'll very often have a domestic abuser who is also an alcoholic or is also a drug addict or is also a gambling addict or has been a victim of sexual abuse himself.
1: Uh, very often you will have him a victim of untreated, an untreated victim of sexual abuse. That's that's kind of, uh, that's so damaging. Sexual abuse, particularly child sexual abuse, is so damaging on the persona that you, nobody survives it intact. The only thing that redeems a person, that salvages them, is uh, treatment. So, yes, you will very often have someone who is a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Alcoholics are very commonly abusers, very commonly. It's very often an outgrowth of advanced uh, alcohol dependence. Uh, Very often starts in alcohol blackouts and then goes on from there. Drug addicts as domestic abusers are categorized by kind of drug and very often in the pro- progression of drug addiction it gets to be anything and everything but drug addicts are much more interested if you get between them and their drug that can be problematic but they're very they turn very much inward uh, that's why we have crack houses and cocaine and things like that opiates it's it's a different kind of category so not as often drug addicts, if you get between the money and the drug addict, could be abusive. But it wouldn't be the same kind of pattern. Alcoholics are very, very much in that mode.
0: And I find myself feeling so infuriated at the idea that someone is beating their wife. And then not that it excuses it. But if, I, if I'm tracing that all the way back to, gee, maybe that was a seven-year-old boy who was sexually abused or some, you know, it's that chain goes on. And on the one hand, I'm furious. And on the other hand, I'm sympathetic.
1: And that's really the appropriate feeling, both of them, because it's hard to say that, that there was never a, a you know, pre existing event. Um, I have almost always found, I would say that when someone has stayed with me long enough, I've had enough time with them. Regardless of whether they were the perpetrator or the victim, we always get to to some events, some settings, some background that set the stage for this. So yes, that is the ideal set of emotions, is the rage that this could happen, and then the disbelief and the rage that something happened to them. And I want to cover one other thing that I think is very important about the victim And I just spoke lightly about it before, but I want to explain it because it's important. It's called Learned Helplessness, and it goes back to all the stages of why she doesn't leave and why she ends up there until she's, in some cases, laying bloody on a gurney or worse. Um, Learned helplessness is the occurrence on the victim of how the perpetrator continually works on the mind of the victim to convince them that they are intrinsically worth absolutely nothing and that they can do nothing. His verbiage is very often, who would take you? Yeah, you think you're going to run away from here? Who would take you? Look at you. You're a mess. You can't even iron a blue shirt. Who do you think is ever going to want you? Your family never even calls you, right? So who would be interested in you? Uh, get a job. Look at that. You couldn't even keep a job at the drugs. You see the kind of thing that it builds in. And so when people say, why doesn't she just leave? I mean, that's all she's been hearing is that she could not survive without him, which by the way, is one of the reasons that she goes back 21 times before someone finally, hopefully reaches her and she stays away.
0: I'm going to mention occupation. And I'd like you to just take 30 seconds or a minute if you have anything that you would say about people in that occupation. And it's either with respect to in doing their jobs or in how their jobs might affect them as potentially being a domestic abuser or victim of domestic abuse. Okay. Corrections officer.
1: Very high possibility to be an abuser because uh, corrections is Probably the most difficult, it's far more difficult to be a corrections officer than it is to be a cop uh, because it is such a confined area and the prisoners are are in such a confined state const- for such a long time. And we're talking about people who are in prison for life, 25 years, you know, maximum security. So um, the corrections officer is constantly being bombarded, taunted. So it's very, very, they store a lot. Let me put it that way. A corrections officer stores up a lot. They're very macho in my experience. I've had any number of them. I've done work in the prisons. Um, they're a very macho kind of lot by and large. And, uh, and therapy doesn't come easily to them. And they don't have a lot of ways to blow off steam. So I would say that, yeah, they're, in, they're certainly in a danger zone. Stripper. Not particularly a victim, no. Um, when a stripper works, they're generally not a prostitute, they're a stripper. Um, many strippers consider themselves artists uh, in the way in which they strip or pole dancers, much the same thing. Uh, they're very much in, in control, they don't like anybody telling them what to do. So uh, strippers are not necessarily victims.
0: Successful entrepreneur.
1: I would say that a successful entrepreneur probably probably has some uh, definitely has some place on the ladder because there's a lot of stress to being successful. Whether you're an entrepreneur or um, whatever your your successful business, there's a lot of stress. And again, successful people tend to internalize that they nobody can help them, nobody needs to. I'm really fine. I got it all taken care of. Don't interfere. Leave me alone. I got this. So that makes them a candidate.
0: Police officer.
1: Police officers, again, carry a great deal. They know a lot. Again, power and control. A police officer has to be very, very efficient at power and control. So it's difficult, I think, to leave that in the patrol
0: car. You mentioned before that domestic abuse is growing in the overage 65 group. Why is that?
1: That is because the older people get, the less visible they are in the community, the less interested people are in them, Um, particularly they retire. We're a nation where our identity is what you do, not who you are. And when that what you do, whether you are a Metro North engineer or conductor or whether you are a CEO, when that's gone, you don't know who you are. And that's not gender specific either, by the way. Frustration is a major factor in the elderly. Increased alcohol use is a factor. Few outlets, nobody listening to them. Not enough activity, not enough exercise. Those are all factors that lead to high tension in the relationship. And nobody's going to talk.
0: One last question before we go I'd like you to speak to any person out there who's listening who is a victim of domestic abuse. I want you to speak to them and tell them what to do.
1: The first thing to do if you are having this realization that you're in a relationship that is centered on power and control, you need to carefully look in the mirror and state that you are important and that this is not how you want to live. And then quietly, carefully, And leaving no evidence behind you, begin to investigate where the nearest battered women's shelter is. Oh, yes. Take your breath away that I could be a battered woman. Yes, you are a battered woman. Take the steps so you don't have to be a dead one. Look for the shelter. Get the help. Speak to mental health or the shelter, and they will help you to create a plan. If you feel that your life is threatened, then keep a package of a change of clothes and a few dollars in your car or at your office so that if it gets bad, you can leave and you don't have to come back. So that you can leave, go to a shelter, and have the help that you deserve. Love does not hurt. Go where
0: the love is. And I want to thank our wonderful guest pat kimball licensed clinical social worker in fishkill new york you can reach her at pat kimball.com p-a-t-k-i-m-b-l-e.com and it has been so wonderful thank you very much for your time and expertise thank
1: you so much mark it's been a real pleasure to be with you